Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. Thank you very much, Congressman Curbelo, for taking some time to speak with Sanity on one of our inaugural episodes. It's great to have you here in Miami. Happy to sit down with you. So someone from Miami, I'm glad to be home right now. I wanted to dive in by starting with something positive. In a really divisive political climate, you've been a voice for reason. In this environment that we're in today, what are you excited about most? What what gets you out of bed? I think that every day as more and more young people come into Congress and as more young Americans participate in our politics, in our elections, we're seeing kind of a return to a focus on ideas, on building consensus in order to address uh, some of the big challenges that are facing the country. The Republican party for a long time was the party of ideas, of the big solutions to address the challenges of our times. And I think over the last decade or so, in many ways, we've become the party of grievance, the party of complaining, anger, demagoguery. I don't think as younger voters start participating more in our politics that there's a future for that kind of party. People are going to demand serious solutions, serious ideas. And that's what I try to focus most of my time on. In the 50s, the Senate was about 80% moderate on Democrat side, 50% on Republican. And in the House where you serve, about 62% and 58% moderate Republicans and Democrats. Today, in the House, it's 11% moderate Democrats and painful to say 1% Republican moderates. I'm speaking to one of them. So finally, I'm part of the 1%. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yes. And because both parties have moved so much to the extremes, what's happened is they've created a massive vacuum in the middle. And they've disenfranchised most Americans because most Americans are centrists, center-right, center-left, or right down the middle. Most Americans want to see people in government, elected leaders, sit at the table and negotiate, compromise, not their principles, but certainly policy so that uh, we, we can actually get solutions to address some of the big challenges of our times, like immigration, like the environment, like economic growth. As the two parties continue moving away from that political center, that's only going to give more and more strength and impetus to those who want to see our politics work again, who want to look at the at the government and if not be proud, at least not be disappointed. I believe in markets and I think there's a political market. And right now there's a lot of demand for centrist, coherent politics and it's not being met. So uh, there's a big opportunity there. I mean, I completely agree. There's 42% of the country identifies as independent. So we have a plurality of voters that that no longer even want to identify with the party, but we have a two-party system. You said recently, related to your work on the Problem Solvers Caucus, that you want to encourage more members of Congress to partake in a third-way faction. I'm curious to ask what you think is the best pathway to bringing these frustrated voters together. Because there's, there's not an easy answer to this one. The Problem Solvers Caucus 
is a direct result of this polarization and the fact that the leadership of both parties or just the dominant currents of both parties have pulled them each uh, further and further away from the center. So that's why you get this dynamic where approximately 50 members of the House evenly split between Republicans and Democrats are saying enough we don't want to live in this environment. We don't. We, we can't get anything done to help our communities in the country. So we're going to start making some demands, and we're going to start conditioning our votes in order to support those demands. We are advocating for a series of reforms in the House that will empower bipartisan coalitions that won't allow the majority party to suppress not just members of the minority party, but their own members. When we know that there are many policy solutions and ideas today that could get well north of 218 votes in the House because they're supported by a majority of the American people, yet they're not allowed to advance. And we did something along these lines uh, when it comes to immigration. We started a discharge petition process. The discharge petition showed that there were a majority of members of the House who wanted to proceed on immigration reform. Although we didn't get the 218 signatures, we did force Republican leadership to allow a bill to the floor. Now, of course, by the time the legislation got to the floor, the issue had again been politicized and not a single Democrat voted for it, even though it guaranteed a path to citizenship for 2 million young immigrants brought to our country as children, dreamers. So, you're starting to see centrist members fill this void and every day more and more have the courage to stand up and say, we want a Congress that's competent, that's sober, that can work for the solutions that so many Americans want. It is a tough time, uh, but I do see some light ahead. Listeners to Sanity are seeking that light right now. Is there anything that you can point us to that encourages you? The Problem Solvers Caucus is obviously a ray of hope, and I think districts like mine are too. The voters of this district proved in 2016 that uh, they're willing to support who they feel is the best candidate for every election. We have ticket splitters uh, here in South Florida. The truth is we need more ticket splitters all over the country. In this district, Hillary Clinton won by 16 points, Marco Rubio won by about a point, and I won by 12 points. And we all had, obviously, a real, real opposition, so there were choices. That type of voting, without endorsing any of the results, not even my own, I think we need to see more of, where Americans stop thinking of themselves as part of a tribe where no matter what, they just have to march with the tribe. No, we are Americans first. And in every district, we as Americans have to make the best choice. Generally, I think that traditional Republican philosophy is, is what's best for our country, right? Limited government, strong economic growth, a strong private sector. But there are some districts where there might be candidates uh, on the Democratic side who are stronger. I think we saw that in uh, Alabama in a special election mm -hmm. uh, some months ago. We just have to really think as Americans first and, and then take uh, partisan considerations uh, into mind.
how do you respond to parties and many voters feeling very beholden to a litmus test? You have broken free of that. You're one of two Republican members of the LGBT Equality Caucus. You've advocated for gun reform and acknowledged climate change and are very active on the issue. How do we get more Republicans and Democrats comfortable with breaking the litmus test shackle? We just need more people who have the courage to be honest. And it's sad that being honest and sincere requires courage these days. When I grew up, that's just how I was raised. You need to be able to look a voter in the eye and say, look, this issue of climate change, I'm not an alarmist. I'm not going to tell you that your house is going to be underwater next year because that's not true. I'm not going to tell you that we have hurricanes as a result of climate change. I mean, South Florida, we've had hurricanes here for hundreds of years. But I am going to tell you that the science and the data show that sea levels are rising around South Florida and that there's a direct connection between higher sea levels and more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And human beings produce a lot of carbon dioxide by burning fossil fuels. So we should work together to build a clean energy future, not by taking people's gasoline-powered cars away tomorrow, but by transitioning to cleaner energy. So it takes time. It's, it's always easier to kind of check the box and, and if a base Republican voter comes up to you and says, oh, uh, yeah, this climate change is a hoax, you just maybe say nothing or say, sure, it's a hoax. It's a lot harder to sit down and, and have this conversation about why it's not a hoax and why we should take it seriously, but we have to make that investment. Every time we invest a little bit of time, and I thank you for this opportunity because we can reach more than one person at a time here. Every time we invest that time, we're investing in our country. We're investing in the future. You know, we lost this great hero in John McCain, and one of the most memorable moments in McCain's history is when he confronted that voter at a town hall in front of thousands of people who said, well, Barack Obama is an Arab. First of all, that's not, she meant it in a negative way, and, and someone's race or ethnicity shouldn't be a, an attack in and of itself. But McCain said, no, no, this is not about his ethnicity. I just happen to disagree with him, and that's why I'm running. And we need to take the time and have the courage to stand up and say, no, no I'm not going to just go with the herd and pretend that this is fine. It's not. The truth matters. Common decency and respect matter, and each of us has the duty to uh, uphold those values and those ideas, even when it's uncomfortable. You worked for Senator McCain as a spokesperson. Yeah, uh, the beginning of his 2008 campaign, actually in 2007, when I was in the private sector, I had the opportunity to do a little work for him, you know, drove him around here in, uh, in South Florida. Uh, I feel very blessed to have gotten to know him well. And I also, I think I was the only House member present in the Senate chamber when he returned after his cancer diagnosis and gave wow. what was for me an unforgettable speech about how we need to work together and set aside those who are trying to divide us for their personal financial gain in many cases and, and others, some colleagues, for their political gain. What a special experience that must have been for you. It really was. I'll never forget it. I went up to him. I told him that I wanted to be there for his comeback after the diagnosis. I told him that we really needed him. We still need him, uh, even mm -hmm. now that he's gone. 
But just because he's gone doesn't mean that that type of patriotism, that type of commitment to country and to public service is gone because all of us have the opportunity to honor that legacy and to create a, a, an army of little John McCain's that will always put this country first, that understand that party affiliation should not define anyone. You know, James Madison feared this. He thought that in a democratic republic, we could get two warring factions and that they would really diminish our democracy and our republic. And that's happening right now. And James Madison's solution for two warring factions was more warring factions. So when we talk about the Problem Solvers Caucus and this third way, that's essentially what we're trying to do. We're trying to create the antidote for what James Madison feared. Do you ever envision a real third party carrying weight in our political process or is our duopoly here to stay? I think it's an open question as to whether we need a third party. We may or may not need it. I think if we get Republicans and Democrats who are willing to impose bipartisanship, impose compromise, negotiation, dialogue, then that has the same effect as a third party. Obviously, if, if you have a third party, I think it's in some ways easier because I think all of us Republicans or Democrats are always going to feel some uh, gravity as, as our party leadership tugs on us. But then at the same time, to build a third party is so difficult, right? The infrastructure uh, requires a lot of funding. Look, I hope it's not necessary. The two-party system has served the country well for, for a very long time. It's been a source of stability, uh, except in the last decade or so. And I think we can fix the two-party system. Can you tell me about a meaningful bipartisan friendship that you formed, maybe in Congress, but, but also maybe, maybe in a completely different walk of life? I have a colleague from uh, Oregon. This is not who someone would assume is, is uh, one of the people I, I trust and really enjoy the most in Congress, but Earl Blumenauer, he's fairly liberal. Yes. I mean, no question. <laughs> <laughs> no one can criticize him for not being liberal enough, <laughs> although I'm sure some people do. That's, that's the way things are these days. But Earl and I have a passion for the environment. We have a passion for states' rights, especially when it comes to cannabis policy. We believe that states should be respected, that, for example, the people of Florida, 71% of who voted to legalize medical marijuana in 2016, that those people must be heard. So Earl and I, despite disagreeing on most issues, and I think if you look at our voting records, they'd, they'd be disparate. We have found issues where we agree and we dedicate our time to figuring out how to advance those common causes instead of figuring out how to fight each other over where we disagree. I think that should be the model and that requires trust. It requires relationships because if you're going to work with someone in, in a meaningful way, you can't then turn around and undermine them or be nasty to them. And we just need more of that in Washington, D.C. Certainly. Not necessarily people who, who agree more, but people who are willing to... Willing to disagree to, in a To disagree in, way. in an amicable way and figure out where they can work together. Congressman Blumenauer was always very kind to the congressional pages. You and I were both yeah. congressional pages in high school, and I distinctly remember him passing out plastic. I think they were plastic. 
bicycle, bicycle pins. pins. He still oh, well, maybe does Maybe they're that. recyclable. I'll bet that. I, I've taken, yeah, I don't know exactly what they're made of, but uh, I take my daughters onto the house. I have two girls, eight and six, and he always, every year, uh, he gives them uh, a bicycle pin. That That is special because I think the PAGE program, which sadly doesn't exist in the house anymore, most uh, most members of Congress were eh, not dismissive, just kind of didn't really acknowledge the PAGE's young men and women who 16, 17-year-olds who worked on the House floor. But there were a lot of members who did just take the time to recognize us, to share some wisdom with us, and, and Earl, certainly one of those. Yes. Well, I think that we've managed to speak for about 18 minutes and not mention by name the President of the United States. That's kind of a good thing in the <laughs> sense that people's lives shouldn't revolve around the president. That's why we built this country, because we didn't want our lives to revolve around the monarch. So the president is important, but uh, shouldn't occupy every single minute of our day, right? It's almost refreshing. But what, while we're on the subject, what is your vision for 2020? I mean, you, you publicly acknowledged early on in the campaign that you were not going to support Donald Trump and vote for him. You called it a moral decision. And you likened him to Hugo Chavez. So you very much in the spirit of this conversation, there's areas for agreement and there's areas for disagreement. Yeah, the, the 2016 campaign, the way the, the president divided the country was was very difficult for me to watch. And I knew early on that way before the um, primary was decided that I couldn't, I just wouldn't feel comfortable supporting that type of campaign. And quite frankly, uh, although perhaps not as bombastically, Hillary Clinton also ran a very divisive campaign and dismissed millions of Americans by, by essentially calling them trash. So uh, I obviously couldn't uh, couldn't support her either. Look, I don't know what's going to happen in 2020. I do think that everyone in public office, from the president uh, down to senators, members of Congress, mayors, local elected officials, deserve to be judged on their records. And although people's um, styles matter, I think real results matter more. What policies have been put into place? How have people's lives changed? So in 2020, we'll have time to kind of look back at the last four years. But I do think it's important that those of us who believe in free market principles, in the value of the individual, in a welcoming America that judges people not uh, by what they look like or where they came from, but by what they're willing to contribute and what they can contribute to our country. Those of us who believe in all these ideas have to fight for them. Many times in politics, you get advice, stay quiet, lay low, fly under the radar. These times require everyone to speak up, even people who, who don't agree with me. We need to have this debate, and those of us who believe in these limited government, free market principles, uh, who believe in American leadership across the globe, who believe that our country is exceptional, uh, need to stand up and say it and demand that the political system is responsive to those ideas. So 2020, every election is an opportunity to do that. 2020 won't be an exception. You've been critical of some Republicans who have served for some time and have decided to step away and to not enter the ring this this cycle. And you yourself have a tough, close race ahead. 
your district carried a higher percentage of points for Hillary than any other district where a Republican incumbent is running again. How are you feeling? And beyond the 26th congressional district here in Florida, how do you feel about centrist, bipartisan, moderate, pragmatic members often representing districts where every two years it's a tough race? I think if you want to be effective in politics, if you want to make a difference, you cannot lead with fear. And we do have colleagues both in the House and in the Senate retiring in large part because they're worried about primaries. They feel that they may lose. That's no way to lead. Our ideas, our values, what we stand for will lose without question if everyone who believes in them walks away from the arena. I'm not afraid to lose. I think that if you're not taking risks in politics, you're wasting your time. That doesn't mean you're reckless. That doesn't mean you go around insulting people or diminishing people you disagree with. Even though I have plenty of disagreements with the president, I, I still strongly respect the presidency. And this president, just like the previous one, if, if he's doing something where I can work with him that's going to benefit my community and the country, I'm going to work with him and I'm going to give him credit. Now, when he's wrong, when he's dividing the country, when he's diminishing people, I'm also going to speak out. We need more voices like that in the arena, people who are willing to hold power accountable no matter who wields it. And to see some of my colleagues walk away at this critical time in our country's history is disappointing. No, no, we need people not just to stay in, but to recruit others to come in and to fight for the country that we love and to really try to rebuild a sense of nation because a lot of times it feels like we're in some kind of civil war here. And uh, it doesn't have to be that way because what separates us is much smaller than what brings us together. As we close, the kind of tagline for sanity is this is created for people who right now feel like they want to stick their head in the sand. It's why our logo yeah. is an ostrich. And so I, I, out of sand. And I understand the sentiment because, look, I'm, we all have moments of weakness. And I sometimes ask myself, oh, God, why am I doing this? I'd rather just be home with my girls and my wife. But don't stick your heads in the sand. Speak up. Our time will come. Our time will come. I, I especially say this to younger Americans, people of our generation and, and those younger. This democracy, this system of government is what protects our freedom. It's what has made this the greatest country in the world. We have to participate. We have to step up. And uh, our time is coming. Uh, we, just, we just have to be ready and we have to be in the arena. Well, that's the thing. You, you can't get anything done if you're not willing to play. That's right. Well, thank you very much for your time. And thank best you. Best of luck come I've November. I've enjoyed it and um, keep doing this. That's, uh, it's an important cause. Thank you.